Thank you to our Bible readers. You might like to keep 1 Peter 2 open. It's on page 1201, just as a refresher. And there's also an outline in the leaflet uh, that you got when you came in that'll show you where we're going to be going uh, as we go along. And it's a good part of the Bible uh, that we're in. They're all good, obviously, but uh, this one is uh, a very good one. Now, I don't know if you've been to the cathedral uh, in the uh, the heart of our great city. I've been there a couple of times for services. Uh, if you've been there, you would know it's a very impressive building. Uh, it's very uh, well designed and uh, and it gives that kind of overwhelming sense of being important. And I was there for a couple of fairly ceremonial occasions, which meant there was no expense spared in terms of the robes, uh, the incense and the drama and the rest of it. Now, the the content may not have been that exciting, but uh, they certainly had the ceremonial part uh, down. But the point of those visits, uh, or at least the point that I'm reflecting on from those visits today, is that it was very hard to connect what's happening inside a building like that on those occasions. All these uh, grown adults prancing around in old-fashioned robes, burning incense, chanting songs, uh, how you connect that with a modern world in which we live, uh, filled with technology and uh, all the other aspects of work and family and life balance and all of these things. How do you connect these two worlds, the spiritual world uh, that might you know, create a great uh, sense of uh, w- response within us, but how does it connect to the real world in which we live? Now, our service isn't quite that dramatic. Uh, we don't turn on the smoke machine or anything like that, but we do have the same struggles. We're reading a 2,000-year-old letter, and it can be hard for that to connect that to our modern lives. Uh, It's a letter that's full of a lot of Christian language, a lot of Christian jargon, which we can often read and feel as though we understand without really grappling what those words mean. And so what we often do is reduce what we're reading to a bunch of rules or guidelines on how to approach life. That's the the simplest way to apply the Bible is to say, oh, what is it saying that I have to do? Just tell me what to do. Uh, What are the things I have to do when I'm at work? What are the things I have to do at home? What are the things I have to do when I'm in church? But if that's the way that we go about reading it, if that's how we're making that connection between the world of the Bible, God's world, and our world, uh, then we're doing it in the wrong order. Because what Peter wants to show us is something about who we are, and then his expectation is that once we firmly grasp who we are in Christ, that that will then express itself in the way that we live. And that, Peter says, is the right order to do things in. So how does that work? Well, Let's have a look at this part of 1 Peter. Now, because these letters are so full, what we often tend to do is to break them up into small manageable chunks, you know, the amount that we can read each week. Uh, But ultimately, they're still letters, and the intent of a letter is that you read it from beginning to end. So if you've never done so, I really would encourage you, uh, at least particularly with a letter like this one, which is quite short, It's only a few pages. It doesn't take that long to read the whole thing together, even a couple of times, uh, just to get a good sense of where it's going. But because that's the intention, uh, it's important that as we come to it week by week, that we know a bit of how it's unfolding, how the uh, the letter is playing itself out. Uh, And this is no exception. In fact, if you know anything at all about grammar, uh, you would have picked up from the first word, therefore, that... What he's saying depends on uh, what he's just said before. 
So that's what we're looking at here. We need a quick recap of what we looked at last week to make sense of this. So here we go from chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 23. There he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Okay, so right away, two things that we notice in that verse. First of all, you've been born again, which as we're going to explore in a moment, is nothing if not a Christian cliche, uh, but as we'll see, it's quite a meaningful one. But secondly, he tells us that you've been born again through the living word of God. Now, those things are important, that you've been born again and that it's happened through the living word of God because... Those two facts are what's going to drive the next chapter and a half of Peter. And that's where we start to get into all of the bits where he starts telling you what to do. And if we forget why he wants us to do those things, uh, we will be doing them for the wrong reasons. So it's probably worth getting that right. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Now that's a collection of a lot of Christian words right there just in one sentence. Uh, and we can often switch off when we hear something like that because we think, well, that's just that's the basics. I know that already. I've heard that a thousand times because you probably have if you've come to church before. You've heard words like those a lot of times. But again, it's important to engage with what Peter's actually saying if we want to work out what we're supposed to do about it. To be a Christian is to be someone who is born again by God's word. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, what word? I mean, we know that Jesus is the living word. Uh, That's something. If you know John's gospel, if you know the first chapter of John's gospel, that's what John says. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But then he goes on to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's saying that Jesus was that spoken powerful word through which God created the world who then became one of us. God become one of us and living among us. Uh, Is that what he means? Well, he says more about it at the end of that chapter. He says, this is the word that was preached to you. So, okay, he is talking about Jesus, but specifically he's speaking about the gospel message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, that message that God became one of us, but not only that, that he lived, that he died on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God and so that we could have new life. He rose from the dead uh, to an eternal life. That's what Peter is talking about. And that's hardly surprising because that's what Peter's been saying all through the first chapter of the book. So again, if we read the letter as a whole, we would know that's what he's saying. So what's the point? His point is, if you are a believer, if you are someone who follows Jesus, when you read or heard the written word or spoken gospel of Jesus, God gave you a new life. You were born again. That's what Peter is saying. But again, at this point, we can say, well, so what? That's standard Christian language. We hear this kind of thing all the time. Yes, yes, we're born again when we hear God's word. That's what we expect. But this is important because what Peter is doing is giving us a context to understand who we are. Context is important. 
because the right context gives us the right motivation to act in response. Now, to give an example, if I were to come up to you after church and say, give me $100, you would probably say no. Or at the very least, you would want to know why I was demanding that you give me money. But if I worked in a petrol station and you had just filled up your car with petrol and I said that would be $100, you would probably hand over your credit card without even making eye contact. Context is not only important to understand what's happening, context is important to determine the way that we act, the way that we respond. When we understand where we are, and even more importantly, if we understand who we are, we can live well. But if we don't understand those things, if we don't understand who we are in Christ, we will find that when we think about Christian things, we will either be confused about what it is that we're supposed to be doing, or we will be resentful about the rules that it seems to be enforcing on our lives. Peter, first and foremost, to begin his letter, wants to tell us who we are in Christ so that we might live well and so that our lives might make sense. Who we understand ourselves to be determines how we approach life. Right? We see that all the time in the world that we live in. If you are a football fan, uh, when your team wins, you will say, we won. You might not have set foot on the ground, but somehow we won because you identify with that team that you feel like you belong to. You will feel more at home with your team's fans than you will with the opposition team. Uh, We have a national identity. Uh, Most of us have a country that we associate with as our own and we feel offended on behalf of our country when someone insults it. Or we might feel embarrassed when the leaders of our country or someone from our country does something that we don't like because our identity is tied up in the country to which we belong. Now we could say similar things about our social class, about how we see other classes of people, how uh, we get identity from our race or from our gender or from our family relationships like being a parent, a brother, a sister, a child. Who we understand ourselves to be determines the way that we will act. If you are a Christian, if you are someone who follows Jesus, Peter says there are three things you need to know about who you are if you want to get that life right. Three things about how you should think about yourself and he expects that to then express itself in the way that we live. So our role for today is to come away, not with a list of rules that we have to follow, but to better understand who we are in Christ. And he's not giving us options here. Uh, Peter's not, you know, giving into the postmodern world and saying, well, here's some opinions on how you can think about yourself. You can take it, you can leave it. It's no difference. It's up to you. Uh, That's not how God works. Peter is saying, well, this is what God has made you to be. You can either embrace that or you can reject that. Uh, This is a highly significant thing. So, our question for this morning, who are you? First of all, you are born again. Now, that is a Christian cliche. It is a phrase that we have heard so many times. Christians are born again. Uh, It's obviously a biblical one, but it's one that really started getting traction in the 1960s, if you were around back then. Then people started to use the phrase born again to talk about Christians who were really serious about their faith. You know, they weren't just 
happy being respectable middle-class churchgoers, they started to do things like talk about their faith with other people, talk about the way that they should live. And so people began to use this phrase, born-again Christian, to sort of say, well, you, you can prove that you're a real Christian and not just going through the motions. It's the really serious ones. Uh, but that's not what Peter's using it to say. He's not just using it as a term for special or serious Christians. He's using it as a term for everybody who follows Jesus. He's saying this is an identity statement about who you are. So what does it mean to say that Christians are born again? Well, the born, born part, anyway, is pretty obvious, isn't it? We know about being born. We know that new births are kind of a big idea. Some people get really excited about new babies. And being born is a pretty significant moment in our lives, isn't it? You know, now granted, uh, the child's already been alive for nine months before it's born, but that first moment uh, when the baby comes out, when they open their eyes, when the cord gets cut, when they begin to see the world around them, that is a defining moment in that child's life. There is a reason that we celebrate birthdays. We remember how long it's been since we were born. Peter says you have been born again. It's not just a clever way of speaking. It means something. Now, he's not the only one that talks about this image. If you remember again, back in John's Gospel, one of the Jewish leaders, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus uh, in John chapter 3, and Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again if he wants to know God's kingdom. Uh, And Nicodemus is confused by that, and it's often the Christian pattern to have a good laugh at silly old Nicodemus who didn't know what Jesus was talking about. But really, it's a strange image, and I'm not sure that we know any better. Could you explain to someone what it means to be born again? Uh, What what, what does that actually mean? I suspect most Christians just grab that cliche and hold on to it without really understanding what it's saying, born again. What is it about birth that Peter is tapping into here? Well, it has to be that birth is the start of life, isn't it? I mean, that's the image. The person that you are, the experiences that you have had, which have shaped you, those relationships that you are in, those relationships that you are no longer in, all of them began at birth. That process of building you into the person that you are now began when you were born. Births are about beginnings. A new birth is about a new beginning. Now, it's not just a new beginning like a, a second chance or, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a new direction in life, I'm turning over a new leaf or anything like that. It's a whole new life different from the old one. That's what Peter is trying to hammer home for us. If you are in Christ, you are a whole new being, a new human. And not just that, look at the nature of this new life. Look at what it's like. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Not of perishable seed, but imperishable. That's talking about the lifespan, the lifetime of this new uh, new life. Not a fixed mortal lifetime, but an immortal one. You see, that's the other thing about birth, isn't it? See, each of us has a fixed period that we will be alive for. And from the moment we're born, those seconds start ticking away. Thankfully, we don't have a clock 
over our heads, telling us how many that we have. But we are born again imperishable through that living and enduring word of God. We look forward to an eternity with God. Now, this is another so what moment. I mean, we know that, don't we? If you've ever been around church for any period of time, you'd know that's the kind of thing that we talk about. Uh, Now, it may not be new in terms of facts, things that we've heard before, uh, but it is in terms of how we understand ourselves if we're really to live that out. What we said before, we say again, who we understand ourselves to be determines the way that we live. See, the way that we often live as believers, is that we say we have this eternal life, but we live as though, well, I'll live out the days that I have here in this life, and then when this life is finished, we can draw a line under that, and we can begin the new one then, which will be wonderful, which will be perfect, and so on. That's, that's the way that we often approach life, the way that we often understand this promise of the new life uh, that Jesus speaks about. But that's only half right. You see, because we think that the new life doesn't begin until this one's finished, most of our plans for the present revolve around this life. We think about how we can make this life successful. How do I get a a good education, a good job, a good career, a good home, a good family? How do I have good experiences that make life pleasurable along the way, doing things I enjoy? Uh, And then when all of that's finished well, then the new life will be even better. But that's not what Peter says. He doesn't say, one day in the distant future, you will be born again. He says, you have been born again. Now, if you've been born again, if this new life has already begun, that means the old one is finished and the new one's begun. So if he says you are a Christian, then your new birth has happened. That's an identity statement. You are living your new life right now. I wonder if a lot of the disconnect that we feel between what the Bible talks about and what we do in life is born out of this fact. Because the Bible says that the new life in Jesus has already begun and that we should live for that life, but a huge chunk of our hearts are well and truly rooted in this life here and now. We're called to Christ-likeness. We're called to embrace those values of God's kingdom, which even now has begun. But pragmatically, the decisions we make are built around comfort and wealth and pleasure here on earth. You see, we wouldn't say it in those words. We wouldn't say we live for the present, uh, not the world to come. But the decisions we make will always speak louder than the words we say. Let's be honest. Where do we invest more of ourselves? Here or there? What are we hoping for? What are we longing for in life? The decisions we make Monday to Saturday reveal who we are in our hearts. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All right. Image number two. You're a living stone. Now, this is another troublesome image, I think, in some ways. I mean, a living stone. 
What do you do with that? Born again was bad enough. A living stone, what are we supposed to do with that kind of image? And so what we often do as Christians, like Christians do with any kind of uh, jargon or cliche that we don't fully understand, we write a song about it instead. Uh, And so we have songs about Jesus being the cornerstone uh, and we're being built into him and, and we kind of absorb that image without ever really wondering what is it actually saying. Living stones. Now, this is an old image, and you can probably guess something about what it's talking about, uh, just from the imagery of being a stone. It's about strength. A stone or a rock is something solid, something that will last, something that will endure uh, far beyond our lifetimes. So living stones. Well, for Israel, God was the rock of Israel. Uh, that, That imagery is all through the Old Testament. It's all through the Psalms. Uh, His presence amongst us was symbolized by Jerusalem, by the temple standing there in the middle of the kingdom. Uh, And then after those things were destroyed, well, then there was a promise of this permanent kingdom that could never be destroyed, which was still to come. And when we heard Daniel read for us early on, that's the promise that Daniel was speaking about in chapter 2. In verse 44, there he said in the time of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will endure itself forever this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands you see this is what's going on with this imagery of the rock they were looking forward to that kingdom that was coming and they were looking forward to it because they knew that it would last forever. They had that longing for something that was permanent, some way of establishing themselves in a way that would continue. And again, it's not just an ancient thing that they do. We do exactly the same thing today. Uh, If you were here last week, we uh, remembered last week on uh, Remembrance Day, the 100th anniversary of the finishing of the the First World War. Uh, But this, this week, we're talking about the Second World War. Uh, This is how England faced the threat of invasion uh, during the Second World War. If you're aware of Vera Lynn, uh, the singer, one of her most famous songs during the Second World War was There Will Always Be an England. The idea that no matter what happened, no matter how bad it got, no matter how dark the present may seem, England will go on. Uh, Or Winston Churchill If you're familiar with him, the Prime Minister of England at the time, in one of his most memorable speeches, uh, which appears in the the movie Darkest Hour that's been made last year, picks up that same attitude. And there's a little bit up here uh, of that speech that he made. He said, Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. And he goes on from there to the really famous bit, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Uh, You can get something of the stirring nature of what he's trying to do, isn't he? It's under a, a dark cloud, but he says, England will go on, come what may. That is human nature, that is what we want. We want to endure We want to know that there is something of what we are which will continue after we're gone. Not just on a national level, but on a personal level. We want to be remembered by the people who matter to us. 
We want to see our precious things passed on so that they might be enjoyed and so that we might be remembered by the ones we love. Israel longed for their homeland to be theirs again, not just for themselves, but for the generations that would follow. They longed for something permanent, something secure, something enduring. Jesus picks up that longing, that human nature, and applies it to himself. He is that stone. He will endure. He died, but he rose again. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the new body, his resurrection body, will never die. He was born again, as we've just read, of imperishable seed. But it's not just Jesus. Come to Jesus, Peter says, you too will be a living stone. You will endure, not because you are strong, not because you are impressive, not because of the great things you have done to be remembered, but because of Jesus' strength, because of Jesus' actions. We're built together into a building, a temple for God. See, our longing for peace, our longing for security, our longing for something that will endure beyond us is met in Jesus. If you are in him, then you will go on forever. There's no questions. You don't need to do anything else. Do you believe that? It's hard to accept. And Peter acknowledges that. He says not everyone will believe. But again, he's saying this is not an opinion. This is what God's word is. We either accept that that's how we find that security or we reject it. It won't happen accidentally. You can't stumble into God's kingdom by turning up at church. It's not about who or what our parents were. It's about how we respond to what Jesus has done. Peter wants us to be people who find our hope by being connected to Jesus. Not just saying the words, but doing them. Living in a way that demonstrates that our identity is secure in him. So, born again, living stones, final image, you're a chosen people. Now finally, something that's a bit more understandable. Verse 9 of chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, uh, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh, At least here we can understand the words. There's four quick statements, each one building on the last. First of all, you're a chosen people. What does that mean? It means that someone wanted you, someone cared about you enough to go out there and choose you, to include you. God has brought you into his family by his own choice. Uh, So you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You have a purpose. God has set you apart to be someone who communicates his glory to the world. That's what a priest does. And he says all believers are part of this royal priesthood. That's a noble calling that we have as God's people. You're a holy nation. You have a a new identity. Your new birth gives you a new citizenship. You belong to a new nation. We spoke early on about how our identity as Australians or whichever nation we come from uh, is a deep part of us. Well, we're called to something even deeper. We're part of God's new people. This is our family now. And you are God's possession. We belong to him uh, in a relational sense. That's what this is. God has brought us close to him so that we might be secure 
in him. All of these, the value, the status, the relationship that God gives us are for a purpose. And that's the last part of the verse. So that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's who we are. That is our calling as God's people. Who we understand ourselves to be determines the way that we live. So to live this calling out, and again, this is important. This is what Peter will be talking about from next week onwards. We don't need to try harder. We need to understand more deeply who we are in Christ. So what does that look like? Our lives reflect our identity. So we don't need to change what's on the outside. We need to have changed what's on the inside. Because otherwise we'll just be trying to copy the right behaviour without really having an identity, a heart that's changed and it will be futile. Now we can understand this if we think about it in terms of, for example, moving to a foreign country. Imagine that you were packing up tomorrow and moving to China. Uh, Now, if you were just to watch the things that Chinese people did and try to copy them, uh, you won't fit in. You won't really understand what it means to be Chinese. If you want to become part of that culture that you are moving to, you need to get to know the people. You get to know, need to get to know what is important to them, how they understand and think about life, why they live the way that they do. The behaviour is important, but the behaviour that we do comes from what's inside us. It comes from the way that we see the world, see ourselves, uh, and therefore live our lives. Following Jesus is no different. If our full identity is not found in him, we will only ever be going through the motions. We'll be trying to copy the behaviour without understanding who we are and why we are called to live the way that we do. Behaviour has to come from the inside being changed by God. Now in your leaflet to take away, there are a few questions to think about how the way you live reflects who you are on the inside. Uh, how your work life, your home life, your church life, whatever it might be, you might come up with other, other areas of your life, other questions that you might need to ask. What I really want to encourage you to do is to think about the way that you act in all of those scenarios. And what does that demonstrate is most valuable to you? What do you hope for in those areas? What do you look forward to? Do you hope for and look forward to things that belong to God's kingdom or to this one? What gives you joy in life? What do you talk about the most? How do you want your life to impact others? How do you want other people to see you? How do you think they currently see you? If you were to ask the people closest to you, what do you think that they would say was most important to you? Would you be bold enough to ask that question? And we have to remember, if our lives aren't positioned where they probably should be, just doubling our efforts to work harder isn't going to fix it. Who we understand ourselves to be on the inside will shape the way that we live. What we need is to draw closer to the one who gives us that identity, to start 
with prayer, to start with talking to a brother or sister in Christ. Because the greatest tragedy that could ever happen would be to reach the end of this life only to find that we'd spent it investing in the wrong kingdom. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us from the very beginning. Uh, We thank you that your mercy, your grace and your love has been on show uh, from the start of time until now. That even when we turn away from you time and time again, uh, that you always come after us. Uh, Lord, we do pray as we go on through the book of 1 Peter and even more particularly as we look to uh, connect what you are saying with the lives that we lead, uh, that we wouldn't ever reduce the gospel just to being a set of rules or commands to be followed. We pray that as we reflect on this, that you would help us to understand who we are in you, that you would change our hearts to long for you, to be hungry for your word and hungry for the world that you are creating. Uh, Lord, we do pray that you will transform us from the inside to be more like your son, to find ourselves in him so that we might naturally live for you as we await his coming again. Amen.